Welcome, everyone, to the weekly movie throwdown. My name is Mike Messinio. And I'm Steven Sigmund. And this is how this works. We're going to pick a theme every month, and we're going to do a movie every week. Kind of fits into that theme. We're going to talk about it, chop it up, good, bad, figure out where it all fits in, and uh, hopefully amuse ourselves and you as we go along. This week, we are continuing our Jason Statham theme, because... Obviously, The Beekeeper just came out. So we're looking at some of his older movies, trying to get the full picture of what's been a pretty interesting career. Uh, more interesting than I think people give it credit for, seeing as how it's essentially just two movies made over and over again. But uh, that alone is really interesting. So uh, that, that's where we're going. You want to tell them what movie we're doing this week? Yeah. It, uh, not very far off from The Beekeeper, but we're doing Crank from 2006. My name is Jeb Chelios, and today is the day that I die. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. I've been poisoned with some kind of Chinese synthetic. You gotta do something for me, Doc. They gave you the Beijing cocktail. It's cutting off your adrenaline. If you stop, you die. Now, I've got one hour to settle the score. Say goodbye to my girl, and go out with a little style. All I have to do is stay alive long enough to make it happen. Clear? Whisper room. I don't know where it is. You're so stressed out. What's the matter? I need to tell you something. I'm a professional hit man. If you're going to break up with me, at least you can tell me the truth. Wait! Now, come on. Your whole crew is history. The unidentified man behind today's mayhem is making a last stand. You were already throwing down. I would argue it is very different. In a way, yeah. But uh, as we'll <laughs> discuss a little further throughout this, Statham really has one gear for the most part, and it's just the matter of where he's placed obviously get into it but I, I do agree with that and i think that this is the first movie where they decided that you can take statham and basically build anything you want around him he's like a static entity here's something interesting right off the bat this was written in 2003 not for jason statham but for somebody else do you know i read an interview and do you know who they wanted to star in crank go ahead say it i do the legend himself johnny knoxville that was the first discussion. That's right. But then they were talking about trying to get Robert Downey Jr., at, who at the time was was kind of like in a place where no one wanted to work with him because he couldn't get insurance because of all his drug issues. So there wow. was talk about that. But do you know who the best person was that was supposed to star in this movie that they wanted to get? Was it and, Mr. Vin Diesel? Mm -mm. So after I watched this, as I'm watching this movie, my, my thought was, these guys had to have worked with Nicolas Cage at some point, right? And they end up working with him down the road, and we'll get to that part. But they very much talked about wanting Nicolas Cage to star in this movie. Wow. And that makes perfect sense. It, in, in my mind, there was no doubt that they had discussed Nick Cage for this movie. It feels like the Nick cage movie, especially around this period of time. Yeah, it, it's insane. They would actually work with him twice, I think. Um, 
uh, at least one of them. Well, together, worked. yeah, they worked with them once, and then uh... and then that kind of broke them up. <laughs> the, the Ghost Rider film, That's right. but um, yeah, Cage in this role. I, I also read about Vin Diesel. I didn't know that Nick Cage was uh, in the running, but it makes perfect sense. I mean, he's so fitting to their style of filmmaking. I mean, it, it's like. <laughs> You're, you're seeing Nick Cage's mind when you watch one of these films. So that's a good fit. Yeah, um, and, kind of, and this is kind of an out-of-the-box role for Statham. And that's why at first they were hesitant about casting him. I mean, not only because at that point he was still very well-known for just working with Guy Ritchie, and they were looking to do something different, but uh, it's a little bit more amped up than probably what you would have expected from him. And And after this, he doesn't do a lot of movies that fall into this crank kind of kind of genre. He starts to get a little more uh, subdued as the years go on. And this one, he kind of really opens up and goes for it, which is what makes it a fascinating movie in the Statham catalog. That it, it's just a nuts movie that he's at the center of, which almost pushes him to a place that I'm not really sure he can go. You know, that, I guess that depends on your taste. It's, it's interesting. You said he doesn't do many movies like this after Crank. Uh, I mean, he will go on to do Crank too, but beyond that and, and Gamer, which the directors Neville Dine and Taylor would do, I think in 2009, there really aren't any movies like this for the most part, because it's just so of its time with the way it's shot. And I think it, it's good to talk about the filmmakers when you get into how this looks, because it's, it's just such a crazy movie to watch. Um, there's there's really no character development. <laughs> there's really not um, much of anything, except uh, basically it's like the best video game movie not based on a video game. Yeah, the first note that I wrote as I was watching this was visually interesting, screenplay no. That, yeah. that pretty much that pretty much says it all. I mean, if you're casting Johnny Knoxville in your mind when you're writing this, you're probably not going to build too much of a a character into that script. I would think <laughs> so. That tracks. Um, and really, everybody they wanted from the list we just went down, it sounds like, with the exception of Cage, I guess, th there's not a lot of character development in most of those roles that they're in. So <laughs> it pretty much makes sense. But yeah, maybe we should just explain what the movie is. And <clears throat> it's, uh, it's crazy. You know, Statham plays Chev Chelios, a guy who, boy, this is going to be fun to sum up. <laughs> He wakes up at the beginning, and by the way, it, it opens with a point of view shot, which I have seen a million times, but I don't know that I saw it before this done in such a way where you're, you're seeing it from his perspective. He gets out of bed, immediately walks to the television for some reason. Well, shades of strange days, but in that that's, one, that's right. it's, a, it's a simulation that you're kind of walking through. In that's this one, right. it's just a movie. So I thought yeah. of Strange Days immediately, I, but I think that, so what it did in my mind, I think what's interesting about this movie is that it, it constantly wants to tell you that you're watching a movie. It, it right. never for a moment wants you to believe that this is approximating real life. Uh, it's either right. a video game or a movie. And the, that opening sequence kind of puts you in that, oh, I'm walking through something almost like a video game. Yeah, so he, he wakes up and finds that he was drugged and he puts a video in the in the. DVD player, it's it's his enemy who tells him that, hey, I've I've drugged you, you have an hour to live if you're lucky. And what happened was there was a, a hit that went awry. And so he's paying the price for that. Um, and he goes on a quest not only to kill this man 
Uh, Ricky Verona is the, the villain's name. But to hopefully find an antidote for this thing, um, it's very video game. It's very like to the point where there are video game shots in it. There's a high score board at the beginning, like you would see on Donkey Kong or something. So it's crazy. I mean, it it's insanity from start to end, and uh, very much of its time. I think it, it, to the point where you you yeah. would not be able to make this now, in part because there's a lot of offensive stuff in it. <laughs> <laughs> like it racism is, it is throughout kind of the most mid 2000s movie you can think of so it, yeah. it so the way that i see it if i if i was to sum it up it, the equation would be if you took doa but not mm-hmm. the really cool 1949 version of doa the noir one the 1988 dennis quaid doa which was kind of more noise than movie uh so if you take the 1988 version of doa you mix it with grand theft auto you add monster energy drink and then you put lip biscuit into it and then twirl it all together in a blender, you essentially get the movie crack. Yeah, that's a good assessment. My question, of course, is right off the bat, so, sorry to burst the bubble of the movie, but he wakes up. Why does he go to the DVD player and know that there's a DVD that he needs to watch? Uh, if he thought that he felt ill, wouldn't he call a doctor or yeah. do something first? But even more than that, <laughs> the people that poisoned him when did they poison him and how long was he unconscious? Was it an hour from the moment you wake up? Because it seemed to me if he was knocked out, which based on what we saw, he was hit with a baseball bat, I'm assuming. I don't know. Even yeah. though he has bruises on his body, but I guess he was hit with a baseball bat, but we're supposed to assume. How long was he unconscious and wouldn't he have already been dead? And even more than that, if you poison him and know he has an hour to live, why didn't you just stay? Why even poison him? <laughs> just kill him in his sleep. Now that you mentioned that, I'm thinking about the logistics and the way it works is he plays this DVD. Uh, what it shows is Ricky Verona has hit him in the head for the baseball bat. But now I'm thinking, okay, they filmed that. They had to go somewhere and burn a DVD of it and then bring it back. How much time is spent creating this thing for him to go through? And right, why wasn't he dead already? Right, we're getting, and we're getting into the weeds. I think it's important to understand. You cannot spend too much time thinking too hard about this. <laughs> I'm going to go with the premise that the poison only starts when he wakes up. That's what I'm going to go with, and I'm willing yeah. to ride with it, because if not, the whole movie falls apart. And, and there's just no reason to think too much about it. it it's designed to give you uh, a fun ride. And, and, and the thing about Crying, I ended up watching it twice, and I think that you can watch it in one of two ways, and depending on how you watch it, kind of informs how you feel about it. So I think that what they're basically going for here is, is a non-reality, just absurdist thrill ride, almost with a hint of satire, although it's like the thinnest satire possible. Yeah, kind of like, for sure. Uh, running Man type uh, satire. That's the 88 movie with Schwarzenegger, like almost like that. Not even that deep, to be perfectly honest with you. But it's like, if you take it as a serious movie, it's a, it's a god-awful movie. But if you kind of watch it as a comedy, I think you'll get probably more out of it. And when I read something about it where Statham had initially told them after he read the script, he told them, I don't do comedies. So at least that makes me understand that he saw it as a comedy. And I think that that's how they see it. And I think that's important for you to have to see it that way. Because if not, you'll either just be offended the whole time or think it's a, it's a garbage movie. But the, the comedy gives it a little bit of a, of a different feel. 
one of the directors, Mark Neville Dine, uh, and we should talk a bit about Neville Dine Taylor. Um, he said that he he wrote it as a parody of an action film, which turned out to be just a good action film. So I think the the thought process was that it was going to be funny, and it is. And and I think Statham's perfect for it because he does have, even though he's kind of one note. I mean, there is a subtle sense of humor throughout his work that I think is uh, good, and and he does it well. You know, from from the Guy Ritchie stuff forward, I I think he has chops as a, a comedic actor, whether he's trying to or not. So yeah, he's very well suited for it. I'm always dubious though when people say things like, "Oh, I was writing a parody of something." Oh, it's almost like as an out for them because if you look at what they've made after that, it's kind of like, "I don't think you were joking." <laughs> this is kind of what you like to do, and you want to couch it in comedy so that it will be more accepted. But part of me thinks you just like this, and and you wanted to make it. It's like just own it. I don't, I don't, I'm not too sure. I believe that you were writing a parody. Uh, you just really I don't know. I don't know. I mean, Crank 2 is just, essentially, it's the exact same film, but it's it's maybe a little funnier. And uh, I know that Mom and Dad, which was uh, the last film, maybe not the last film, but one of the films that Brian Taylor went on to write and direct later, actually a Nick Cage film, uh, super funny. I mean, it's it's a crazy film about kids who have to survive when their parents go nuts for in a, in a town for like 24 hours or something. And uh, having Nick Cage in it, as a, as a crazy parent, I mean, how do you not write that as funny, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I, I totally sent off of that. But yeah, I always, I, I get it. I'm just, maybe more so music and things like that. I remember someone says they're trying to write a parody or something. It's almost like, you just secretly really like this and you and you want to figure out how to make the weirdest version of it possible. But I'll, I'll give you that. I think It's easy to say going, after the fact. Yeah, I just, yeah, but I do think they were just going for the most amped up, ridiculous thing you can, you can go with this one. And, and, for and, sure. And they succeeded because I just thought as I, most of the time I was watching this movie, I thought uh, this had been written by 14 year old boys. Like this just felt like that. <laughs> it was wrong. the first thing that they wrote. Um, and yeah, let's let's talk about the directors a little bit. They're a team called Neville Dine and Taylor, and they only, they only made four movies together. This Crank 2 Gamer, which was a uh, 2009 Gerard Butler film that had a lot of potential. I, I didn't think it was very good, but it it had the right idea, kind of similar to this almost. Um, and then they made Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, again with Nick Cage. And uh, I don't think that broke them up, but it was the last thing they did together. They both went on to do other things. I, I think that it, it, my theory is that it was their destiny to work with Nick Cage. And then once they accomplished <laughs> it, I mean, what else is there to really do? So they decided to explore separate things because together that's the pinnacle of achievement. I would think every filmmaker should just quit after they work with Nick Cage. <laughs> but uh, these two guys were from New York and they they just uh, had such a dynamic style. And Mark Neville Dine, he's the one I'll talk about the most because he was very involved in the look of the film. Uh, both of them were camera operators on uh, commercials, things like that. But Neville Dine invented something called the roller dolly. He's he's uh, just like a masterful rollerblader, apparently, and would get to work by hanging on to the back of cars in New York City when he worked there or when he lived there. And he just started carrying a video recorder with him. And uh, I guess he shared some of the footage and Nike found him and hired him to do some commercials. And so that's how the two met. And this uh, roller dolly's kind of his thing. And 
it's it's basically all the crank is shot in uh for the most part um i watched some behind the scenes footage and just about every shot is neville dying on rollerblades he, he's the camera operator and he's just following along with a camera like skating by statham or hanging on the back of the motorcycle during the motorcycle scene and it, that's really the style of it which i think is really cool to have that one thing but i also don't know that it's kind of a lasting trademark that you can lean into for too long i mean it was very much of the 90s and early 2000s it's very reminiscent of a lot of skateboard videos like i used to skateboard religiously as a young man and i would watch skate videos all the time and it was a lot of this stuff it was a lot of like fast camera work somebody skating next to the person doing a trick holding the camera down by their feet and that's kind of what neville dine brought to this and it's very much of the early 2000s yeah i think that um the way that i see it because i think i think it really is visually fascinating and it's definitely the best thing about the movie by far And, and when you know that that's how it's being filmed now when you watch it again it's really interesting to, to see it because you, you can almost see the wheels and how quickly things are moving. Um, yeah. But but I think the reason it's gone out of fashion now is that technology just got better. It's become easier to kind of replicate that mm-hmm. using different means. Whereas back then, I mean, and both of us know because we're old enough to remember that things used to be hard to, to, to do things <laughs> uh, in certain <laughs> ways that you had to manually figure out a way to do something. And, you know, he figured out how to use rollerblades, which is really cool and um i I think that is by far my favorite thing about the movie just kind of seeing what parts of the movie you can see were probably filmed with him on rollerblade which is amazing yeah and it but i I don't know that too many films today are made with this kind of of uh like frenetic energy that they would need (laughs) like a rollerblade shot anyway i mean this is just so indicative of 2006 um with video games and with skateboarding culture it's it's like x games so yeah it's finding a solution in real time for something that uh is just all about 2006 uh which is great it was also shot in hd which was kind of new at that time uh hd video which is i have some notes i i actually had some notes on this oh okay let's hear what you have i want to talk about it so yeah you know, up to this point, there were only a few major movies that were shot in video. Uh, in 28 Days, Bamboozled by Spike Lee, was actually shot in digital video going back to 2000. But a lot of other movies up to this point were mostly independent movies. Uh, you know, Robert Rodriguez did it, but we know his he has a history of shooting in a, in a guerrilla style, so that makes sense for him. But a yeah. lot of it was kind of lower budget movies. It wasn't until right about this time, like 2006, where you start to see quite a few bigger movies shooting in HD. So Michael Mann had shot some of Collateral using HD, which mm-hmm. we know. But Miami Vice came out in 2006. And famously, that was all shot using HD cameras. And a lot of people hated it. There was a lot of controversy about how it looked, how it sounded. Uh, but he very much knew what he wanted and he used it specifically for that reason. So you know, that that was a big one. You know, Click, there was an Adam Sandler movie called Click that used the shot in uh, HD video. Superman Returns, interestingly enough, was also shot using uh, wow. video. So I feel like 2006 is kind of a, a turning point where you're starting to see bigger movies start to go that route. And then when you get to 2007, Zodiac, uh, I believe, ends up ends up shooting some in HD. It's super bad. And 
you know, quite a few if you kind of look at the list. But, but so 2006 is, is to me is kind of like a hinge point where I think digital video becomes more accepted. And I think Crank probably had something to do with it because they really showed you what you can do using video. They, you have like a digital image technician on set that can kind of manipulate images, uh, you know, as you're there. Mm-hmm. And they use the same guy who Michael Mann used for Miami Vice. So because this was early technology, I think there weren't a lot of people that were able to do this. And so they ended up using the same person to handle that. And I think that Crank really showed that you can take digital video and almost do whatever you want with it. They were able to play with how the, how the camera shakes, play with adding graphics, play with uh, the way the way the scene looks, make things wavy, like all these little things that they were able to do in the moment, actually, by manipulating the image as they were filming and as they went along. Mm. So I, I do give them a lot of credit. I think that Crank probably showed a lot of people what you can get away with and, and show that it can be used not just because I can't afford film, but to be used as a medium in and of itself to make something visually interesting. Yeah, it, I, I mean, it, it's kind of like the bridge between film and digital recording, basically. Um, and it was an interesting time. I mean, ultimately, I think it only lasted, I don't know, a decade and a half or so before the technology really started kind of picking up and then everything went to like red cameras and, and digital, fully digital. But um, Supposedly, um, Gamer was the first film shot with red. That's right. Yeah. So, so the, I mean, so these guys, you know, credit where credit is due. They, they were kind of on the cutting edge, you know, chasing something new. Uh, and, and I think that that's something that's very cool. One more movie shot in 2006 on digital video that I have to mention. Uh, Once was also shot with digital oh, yeah. the, the John Carney film. So I just feel like I'm going to mention yeah. it. And also Apocalypto. Yes. 2006 was, uh, yeah, big, a big period of time. For, for, those, for those kind of movies, I think, and showed all these things you could do. Because Apocalypto, to me, was a, a really visually interesting movie as well. It allowed you, you know, allowed you to really create some uh, scenes in the woods and, and, and really put you in the middle of there. So, so um, yeah. It's an interesting format. I mean, it's it's kind of like a prosumer format where it's it's expensive for an everyday person to have it, but it's it's not pro level. And there were a lot of like you said, young filmmakers working on this. Um, I don't know if uh, Tony Scott shot Domino on digital video. I would assume he did. That was probably like 2005. But as I watched Crank, I kept thinking about that film uh, and its editing style and its and just like the oversaturation of color. Uh, so I haven't really researched this, but I would be curious to see if there's any crossover with crew on those two films, because that's like the epitome of digital video and crazy saturation uh they were like you said not the first to do it but and actually this was a time before you know high definition televisions so they were kind of shooting for something that almost couldn't even really be appreciated in its full format by most people so it's interesting but it's uh i mean these guys were something else i mean they they saw a lot of things that uh, other people didn't see and and it worked for a while and it's great. What I found out, which I didn't realize, was that um, Brian Taylor ends up working on, not just Mom and Dad, but he worked on the TV show called Happy, Mm -hmm. which was on the Sci-Fi Network for a couple of years in 2017, I think, based on a graphic novel by Grant Morrison. Uh, This show is completely bananas. Uh, 
and I, I think it also kind of shows you that maybe this type of style ends up lend, almost lending itself more to television because Happy is is so much the, the brother or cousin of Crank. It's not even funny. It is one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen. Uh, it involves uh, an imaginary friend who only a certain number of people can see. Uh, uh, the villain dresses like a, a, a bunny from a TV show. Uh, just hyper-violent, hyper-distorted, incredibly surreal. One of my favorite Christopher Maloney parts of, of all time. He just completely owns it. Uh, spends half the show in his underwear. Like he's it's just completely uh, bonkers. Uh, and, and, it, and it very much feels like Crank, but improved. I think by this point, maybe he's a bit older and uh, has a, more of a handle on what he wants to do. But uh, I, I, if you liked Crank and liked this style at all, I highly recommend Finding Happy because it's really entertaining for one of the weirdest things you will ever see. Yeah, I think he and, and uh, Brian Taylor... Uh, Christopher Maloney and Brian Taylor. Uh, I don't know if it's the same characters from Happy, but they they created a short film called Out, which they actually made <laughs> available as an NFT. So again, these guys are, at least Brian Taylor, is kind of on the forefront of things that may or may not go on to be good <laughs> media for working in. So let's go through the movie a little bit. We we kind of got to the point where he <laughs> woke up, uh, found this DVD, and then it's like out the door, and he's just, you know, trying to get where he's going. And <laughs> well, so so we'll we'll uh, we want to spoil too much. Although if you haven't seen Frank by this point, I, I don't know if you're ever going to watch it. We'll spoil that. Uh, he finds out from his doctor, played by Dwight Yoakam, by the way. Fantastic uh, performance. Country star starts dipping his toe in and making movies. Uh, had been in Panic Room a couple of years mm -hmm. ago. Uh, just a really ends up being a really good character actor, go-to guy. Yep. So, um, calls his his doctor, who basically tells him that this stuff will kill you once your your heart slows down. So he has to keep moving, as keep his adrenaline up, or he will die, and chaos ensues. <laughs> I, what I love is that right off the bat, he he calls uh, Pedro from Napoleon Dynamite, who I'm actually, you know, I shouldn't just call him Pedro. He, he is Efren Ramirez, uh, and his character is uh, Kylo. So uh, he calls Kylo, and Kylo tells him to go to this club. And what I love here is, and they do this throughout the film, is that a lot of times you'll see a driving scene to, to show one person getting from one place to another. They rely on Google Maps, which I haven't seen before this. And you, you know, you, that takes care of three minutes of driving. Like it's just point A to point B on Google Maps. And then there you are. Like, I, I don't recall seeing that in a film before this. And I think it's really cool. Now it's everywhere. Itself was, was fairly new at the time. Uh, again, not to think too much into it, but if you need to keep moving in order to make sure that your heart doesn't stop, why are you driving so much? <laughs> yeah, just run. Should you be running? Why would you get in a cab? I don't understand any of these things. Well, LA's well, big, you know. <laughs> I don't know. You know, there's it, there's a ticking clock. It's basically speed with with, but Jason Statham is the bus, and uh, 
yeah, time is short and LA's sprawling. It's so. LA. There's a lot of traffic. I don't know why you choose to get into a car. I'm, I'm not really sure about the thing. Just look. Yeah. I think we could spend an hour just talking about all of the poor <laughs> decisions that are made in the movie Crank. I don't think anyone ever chooses the right decision at any moment. It's clearly a film of poor decisions. Nonetheless, he does drive a car. He could steal a bike. I mean, that's kind of the best of both worlds. You know? Which he does, and that, that's a good move on his part. Yeah. Of course, it's a police bike, and why he's not surrounded by cops within like five minutes. Again, trying not to think about it too much. Well, that's interesting because speaking of him stealing a motorcycle, he, he runs up to a cop in traffic for jumping ahead, but whatever. He runs up to a cop in traffic, snatches his gun from his holster, gets the cop off the bike, throws the gun and steals it because he has to get somewhere. Does some donuts on the bike. The cop grabs onto the back and he's spinning around, holding onto the bike. Sparks are flying. Statham cuts loose, drives down the street and stands on the, the bike on the seat while it's going down the yellow line to get some, uh, get some adrenaline going. Uh, so this stunt, which by the way, is, is scored by Harry Nilsson, the, the song from uh, the cowboy, Midnight cowboy. Yeah. Amazing. But Statham did all of his own stunts in this film. So that was him. And the stunt actually won the best specialty stunt at the world stunt awards. That's pretty cool. You know, you got to give it something. Uh, crank yeah, one. I actually didn't know that he did that stunt by himself. That is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, he did everything except, and he even was on the helicopter. Obviously, he didn't do the the fall or whatever. Um, but that's not the only award that Crank won. Crank was given an award from the Women Films Film Critics Circle, uh, most offensive male character. So two awards for Crank, one good and one bad. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's a couple of moments in the movie where uh, he's just unnecessarily racist. I don't know, just to move the plot along, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. It's the mid-2000s. I don't know. I mean, the fact that you can make a joke about calling a uh, a cab driver Al-Qaeda and then having a bunch of people jump on top of him and start beating him up, that's like the most mid-2000s joke you can possibly make. Uh, you got to place it <laughs> in the context of the time. I don't know what to say. That got me thinking about... This is in the middle of the Iraq War, 2006, okay. and I, I wanted to do a deeper dive on this, but it, it, it's going to take a lot of thought and a lot of research about the films of that time. And Crank being what it is, it's there aren't a lot of films this year or the years around it that are as aggressive as this. So it's curious that this is where it is, and it's able to do things like be super racist. Yeah, so... He's on this mission. He needs to find this antidote or at the very least find Ricky Verona and just murder him and his crew. That's what the film is. He's going everywhere he can, trying to get the location of this guy. But what's great is he actually calls him all the time. They have all these phone calls and it's just fantastic how Verona poisoned Chev Chelios. He's going to die. But every time they talk on the phone, Chelios manages to just rile this guy up so much. So even though he's near death, he has the upper hand on this guy. And uh, it's kind of that way throughout, which is really fun to watch. Because I'm sure he's thinking, why didn't I just sit there and watch him die? I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure he's wondering the same thing we are. Yeah, you know. Because it's, uh, by the way, we jump forward, we have to go back because Chev ends up killing his brother in one of the most, this to me, 
I'm watching this movie and it's kind of like spot the reference in certain instances where we know yeah. most of the reference is Limp Biscuit. But besides that part, uh, that scene in particular where he kills his brother mm-hmm. and chops his hand off with a meat cleaver and then picks up the hand that has the gun in it to shoot somebody else yeah. and then says to his his friend, he's like, hey, you want to hold hands and then throws him the hand. And I'm like, <laughs> that's the most Schwarzenegger moment I've seen in, in decades. So yeah, <laughs> great, great one-liner. Uh, and there are a few of those throughout, but it's nothing like '80s action level. There is a scene with the hand later on where <clears throat> it's delivered to Verona, and there's a really cool shot from underneath a glass table where you see Verona's reaction to the hand, and the hand just sitting kind of in midair on this glass table, which I really liked. Uh, if you were looking at the shot and thinking that was really cool, which I thought for a second, but then what took me out of it is, of course, thinking, who brought him this hand? And why did they bring him the hand? Why didn't they bring him his brother? <laughs> and what are we supposed to get? What are we getting from the fact that they brought the hand back, which serves no purpose? I know Again, looking we don't want medallion. to think too much. Looking, looking for the medallion, which I don't think they found, but... Did the hand have a ring on it too? Like, is it like what? I'm not sure why you would bring someone their brother's hand if the body's still in an alley. Well, <laughs> but they picked up all of it and just brought in the hand as proof of death. I don't know. I don't know. But if you These are look, that keep me up at night. This is the kind of stuff that's just going to stay with me. If you look on the table, it's not just the hand; it's also the bullet that killed him. So, did they fish that bullet out of his head? you know why the bullet but he was like bring me the bullet in the hand the rest of it i don't care about <laughs> he's gonna build a new brother from that hand i guess i don't know but <laughs> it's uh it's crazy yeah but uh yeah so he kills his brother i mean he kills everybody you know that's kind of the thing um and then they throw in a love interest which is pretty great i have to say uh it's amy smart plays statham's girlfriend eve i'm a big amy smart fan I love her. To be honest, um, I'm not really sure what's going on with this character. Are we supposed to assume like she's the, is she like the Brad Pitt character in True Romance? Like, is she just like, like Floyd? Yeah, is she like Floyd. Are we just supposed to think that she's an idiot? Is she is she constantly stoned? I'm I think not so. Really sure what her deal is? In the second one, she's a stripper, and I think she might be a stripper in this one too. I don't know. I kept asking myself like what point what purpose she serves script wise we know Um, what purpose she serves script wise but we'll get to that (laughs) well she serves to get his adrenaline going a few times um but i kept thinking do you need her in there you know could she be not involved at all and this would be basically the same film well i think that the idea is that we need to believe that he is willing to walk away from the life for her. Yeah, I and guess she's a MacGuffin. Is, is what my problem is. We haven't seen anything from her in this movie that's developed enough to make you think he would want to walk away from the life for her. I'm not really sure what she's bringing to the table. She wakes up at like one in the afternoon. <laughs> I don't know what, I'm not, I don't, I don't know. And he seems like a very rigid, you know, by the book kind of guy doing his job. I, I don't really feel the, I love her so much, I'm going to give up my whole life so we can be together. Was that just an excuse? I, I don't but who know. are we to judge? Love, you exactly. know. I mean, yeah, love is a, is a mysterious thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so we'll get to the the main point of her needing to be in the movie is that he needs to have someone with him 
to amp up the danger, but also to have two of the uncomfortable, strangest scenes I've seen in a movie. Gratuitous. Gratuitous. There's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. <laughs> um, because, yeah, I, I mean, like I said, a movie written by 14-year-old boys. Only a movie written by, like, you know, men at this period of time. Do you say no to someone, hit them twice? No, say no twice, punch him in the face, and then suddenly just be so taken by his animal magnetism, you decide to have sex in a public place. Yeah, uh, I, I, I wrote that. Hundreds and hundreds of people. I mean, it's... it's... It's rape. I mean, it's, it's just rape, right? Like, uh, she says no multiple times. But then she just, then all of a sudden she's super into it. So I don't know. I, I Again. Yeah, but one no. But the, the, uh, but the change in her decision making in that moment seems uh, very much not realistic. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I'll give you one better. That scene was ridiculous and dumb. But it was the other scene that actually really annoyed me. The car blowjob. Yeah. So they're in the car and he's he's in a high speed chase. And she finally understands everything that's going on, that he's dying yeah. and why he wanted to have sex in that moment. Fine. And so then she decides to uh, give him a blowjob in the car. He's already in a high speed car chase. Yeah. <laughs> it's not he's enough. Fine. Like, I don't really think he needed the adrenaline boost in that moment. I think the people chasing him with guns behind him was more than good. Why don't you wait till you're done with that? And yeah. Then possibly take care of that later on. Again, poor choices. Yeah, you need to pace yourself with this stuff, with, right. with the adrenaline. But yeah, but then after that scene, she watches him just walk over to the car and assassinate two men. And I, I thought, man, she's pretty cool with this. Like, she just watched him kill two dudes. But... She does at least ask him why he does it, which that's something. But again, she's she's okay with this ultimately. And he, but what I love is that he tells her he's a video game programmer, which is very fitting to the film. But he's like, remember when I told you I'm a video game programmer? Yeah, I murder people. So that's quite a quite a leap from from occupation to occupation. But. Uh, hey fun writing it's it's uh it's great that's that's one word for it sure <laughs> yeah. why not but yeah you know it's it's more of this throughout he's he's trying to get an antidote or to kill verona and there's a climax uh i think we could probably skip most of the stuff it's him trying to find uh you know ways to amp himself up on the way to kill this guy he ultimately finds him on a rooftop. Big battle ensues. Hang on, let's jump back. Let's jump back. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not asking for a director's cut of Crank. I'm not. But things just happen where we don't really understand exactly why they're happening. Like uh, when he goes to the warehouse to see some people that technically he used to work with. That's what I'm assuming. They are former mm -hmm. associates. So he goes there and kills one guy and goes in the warehouse and they don't shoot him or anything. I don't know what, I'm not sure what's going on there, but they murdered one of his associates in the chair, which I'm not even sure when that happened or, or when, or what that seems supposed to mean. Uh, the only good thing in it is that the, the guy he talks to in the warehouse, that guy's name is Francis Capra, 
who was in Veronica Mars at the time. I was a big fan of Veronica <laughs> Mars. I'm excited to see him. But I don't know what the killing the associate thing is for. I'm not even sure why he went to the warehouse. So he went to the warehouse because his associate, Kylo, called him from there and said, Verona's here. They're at Don Kim's shirt warehouse. Come on out. And I guess they caught him spying or making a phone call to Chelios. And that's why they killed him. But I think ultimately the purpose he serves is that he can be a human shield once he's dead for Chelios for like five minutes. Uh, because you need a way to get out of that open warehouse. And what better way than to have Kylo's body take all the bullets? But yeah, you you mentioned the, the guy from Veronica Mars. And uh, also the first person he encounters is the guy on the rooftop. Uh, and that's a guy called Noel Guglielmi. And he's, in my opinion, a grossly underused character actor. He's been in everything from Training Day to The Fast and the Furious to The Dark Dark, Dark Knight Rises. And he's always just the Latino gangbanger or criminal. But he's funny. He's good. I mean, I, I would love to see him in a more serious role or a longer role because he's always in and out. Um, and I just want to give him a shout out because he's here doing what he does. I wish he would do a little more sadly so maybe it's a me problem i've now watched crank like four times and still had no idea what the hell he was doing in that warehouse so that, that may be a me problem sorry i think i've well, been taken by everything else that uh, i mean it's like 87 minutes so i don't think you want to cut another six or seven out of it uh but that's also a way for amy smart to get there and see what he's doing so exactly. that's another thing but uh yes the the inability of people to notice other people like sneaking up behind them because in the climax, too, how do like 20 people sneak onto a rooftop that's heavily armed with guards and no one notices any of these people will show up? But but not that even just that. Ninja that, I, that I, that's beyond me. But beyond that, it's an entire crew standing directly behind Chelios. Yeah, and did he work, but did he work out this plan with them ahead of time? Because he uses the finger thing. It's like, does he know this is going to happen? Did they discuss this? He has to, yeah. Yeah. That, it, so is that like a surprise twist? I almost want to see that phone call. Like instead of the shirt warehouse, I'd rather see him organizing with Don Kim's crew to come take care of, of the guys on the roof. But yeah, I, I remember <laughs> marking that down. Like there are 10 men standing directly behind him. How do they not see them? <laughs> <laughs> I mean that, yeah. I don't know. I, I mean that's some magician work, right? There may, maybe maybe they're all magicians. I have no idea. It's, uh, well, again, we're overthinking it. Uh, we're overthinking it. Uh, and one more thing that, that I may be overthinking, but as I was watching the movie, I found myself thinking, how many women in the movie are actually wearing shirts? <laughs> Boy, when do you watch Craig too? There were not a lot of shirts worn by women in this movie. And if someone would please explain to me the naked women in the bubbles at the end in the hotel. I would love for someone to explain this to me. I was worried what for them. The hell was that? Was there air in those bubbles? Why were they wearing no clothes? Are they hostages? Are they decorations? Well, it's hot in there with no air. They can't have clothing on. <laughs> that's a good point. That's, that's just practicality. That's a good point. But, I wish uh, just one of them would have rolled off the roof. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, speaking of, 
so as I was doing some reading on this, I found out that one of the scenes that they really wanted to do in the first crank was they wanted to have someone shoot out someone's breast implant, but the technology wasn't available yet. So that's why that scene is in the second crank. Okay. That was on their bucket list of things they wanted to do. Maybe uh, naked women in, in glass spheres was in the, was on the bucket list for the first movie. I, I don't know. But, um, <laughs> they did have the technology to kill a bird, which uh, I didn't right. love seeing. Um, yeah. Man, it's just, if we're going to... <laughs> If we're going to talk about plausibility, uh, <laughs> things that probably shouldn't work, we need to talk about the end. The guy falls out of a helicopter and lives. I mean, not only falls out and lives, hits a car, bounces off of the car. Even Wiley Coyote does not have that ability. There's no he way a car is bouncing. And he, and he just sees splats there. Even cartoons have more plausibility of how someone lands from a giant fall than this movie did. We've seen this before. We we saw it in Lethal Weapon. Uh, we saw it in the what the other guys. I think people falling from the far distance. <laughs> they didn't the live. <laughs> yeah. Well, it might as well end the way it began, right? Like uh, absurd. Well, the, the crazy part, though, too, is he, he doesn't explode into a million pieces once he once he hits the ground. Yeah. But it does appear that he is dead. Well, oh, he does blink. He does blink, doesn't he? Yeah. And Crank 2 opens with... Well, I was getting that. That's what I'm saying. I know how Crank 2 opens, or it's, it's directly after that. See, yeah. I assume that because his eyes were wide open, they, they were at least letting us think that he must be dead. But you know what? You're, maybe you're wrong. Maybe they always knew they were going to be, uh, an, there's going to be another Crank, and they want to keep him alive. I, I, I think so. Yeah. Well, you can leave it ambiguous, and then if it doesn't work out, he's dead. If it does work out, uh, a, a black van comes, and a crew gets out and uses a shovel to scrape him off the ground. Yeah, can we speak about the fact that before he gets in the helicopter, he's injected with the same poison again? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's not even if he wore off the first time. He now got it injected a second time, then falls out of a helicopter, lands on a car and the pavement, and survives all of that. I don't know what to make of that. Well, there's a lot to to not know what well, to make. I grew up in the '80s. I watched a lot of action movies, and my ability to suspend disbelief is great. I, I've put up with many things that were stupid, uh, <laughs> but this one was even hard for me. See, I loved it. I love. Uh, I didn't love the film, but I love the absurdity of it. I was all in on it. I thought it was uh, super fun to just find the the uh absurdities in it and and picking it apart is definitely more fun than actually watching it i think i think as i'm getting older i think this is this is a thing for me as, as i'm getting older i find that um i need to have characters at least one that i like and that helps me watch the movie but i never liked anybody in this movie i, I didn't like chev at all really and um even though i like jason statham yeah i didn't find i liked anybody in this movie me, you didn't me, like doc miles chester bennington who makes a cameo. That's right. Chester Bennington from Lincoln Park, which again is the most mid 2000 thing you can do. Have Chester Bennington in a cameo. It's so of its time. Yeah. I really liked Doc Miles. I, I, and he's pretty prominent in the second one too. So I was happy to see him come back. I would love to see a third one. That's all Doc Miles. Yeah. Maybe, but, maybe he should get his own spinoff movie. That could be interesting. Well, they there is talk of a Crank 3 and there's a script for it. 
from what I understand, it's very Amy Smart centric. So keep your okay. eyes open for that in the upcoming years. Okay. I, I have to go back for a second. Something I forgot to mention. Uh, again, I know why we're picking up our crank. I mean, this is dumb. But if you are in a hospital and you're trying to get away from somebody and decide that you're going to impersonate a patient to walk away. Keep your underwear on. Exactly. <laughs> Why would you have taken off all of your clothes? That <laughs> makes no sense. You know you're trying to escape and eventually you're going to need to cover your ass or at least carry the clothes with your gun as you're walking out. There's the gun stuffed in his armpit. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So he escapes the hospital dressed as an, in a patient gown, uh, no clothing under, I guess to sell it, you know, but the giveaway is that he has like 30 Harry's gun shoved in his armpit. It's and he's wearing clear. sneakers. So he's not even wearing those hospital socks, which we all yeah. know you have to wear when you're in the hospital. So I, <laughs> look, he put the underwear on. It would have been fine. I know why he doesn't have the underwear on. I get it. I know where we're going with this. Poor decisions. Yeah, well, you know, there were a lot of them made, but uh, they kind of come together in a in a fun way. Uh, racism aside and rape aside, it's a relatively fun film. You can go with it or you don't. You either hate it because you think about it too much, or you just decide you're going to go with it and, and take the ride. And again, visually, there's so many interesting things happening in it. I mean, for that reason alone, it's actually kind of worth your time. It's kind of putting in the context of when it was made and seeing, I, I think you said there are a lot of movies made like it afterwards. No, possibly none, but the idea of it and the spark from it, I think, did spawn a lot of movies like it in, in certain ways, uh, mm -hmm. in terms of visual style, in terms of how things are shot, in terms of uh, action movies with, with, no, with no discernible script. Uh, quite, quite a few things. Uh, you know, Crank kind of spawns. So, so for that reason, it is pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, a gamer, you know, by by these two guys, it certainly uh, has the same DNA, of course, and quite a, a unique look to it. And uh, there's actually a film called Hardcore Henry that came out in 2015, which I feel that's all first person, I believe. And right. that feels like it owes a lot to Crank. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's an innovative film. It's, yeah. I think, the visually... I had heard is they were signed on to make a a series of twisted metal yeah. uh, video game, which has ended up being made and is on Peacock right now. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how they stopped being involved in it, but I mean, that would have fit their style. Maybe because they broke up, I have no idea. But I think that that was very much something that would have fit their style of filmmaking. They probably would have worked. I haven't seen the version that came out, but, uh, but yeah, I thought that was uh, interesting to know because yeah, that, that would have worked. I can't see how that's a TV show. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I, I played the game maybe once, so maybe I just don't have a full concept of what it is, but uh, it's like Cars, right? Isn't it? Well, I yeah. guess Fast and the Furious is uh, the most popular thing in the world, so why not make Twisted Metal? Uh, and it has Rosa from Brooklyn Nine-Nine in it. I think the visuals of this film are really, it's saving grace. I mean, it's probably the reason it has a 62% critic rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, and a 71% audience rating, actually, which is really surprising because um, it's not all that great. I mean, it's fun, but... Uh, I, think it, I think it distracts you just enough where every time you think, 
wait a second, why is he wearing no underwear? So, something crazy happens, and then yeah. and that, that's that's what helps. That it, it does enough. There's enough insanity in it to distract you from how little there actually is that's there. It's actually an interesting entry into Statham's filmography. I mean, it's pretty unique. Uh, it kind of has little elements of just about everything he does, but uh, it's really wholly its own. And, and uh, kind of the first thing that I think maybe launched him, I don't, well, maybe not, but it certainly is prominent in his filmography. And I think it's more to do with the style of the film than him. But uh, yeah, nonetheless, it's an interesting entry for him. Yeah, so I so just going through his career, which is kind of what we're here to do. That was kind of the point of this. I think we got distracted by Craig. We're really supposed to be talking about Stephen a little bit. So you know, he made The Transporter in 2002, mm-hmm. which I think was kind of his first solo movie. I think this was the first movie where he was really the star. Uh, they ended up making three of those. So, and that's a movie that very much is in his wheelhouse. Uh, strangely enough, the kind of movie that Liam Neeson would do now. That's yeah. almost like where that whole thing came from. So Transporter kind of sets him up as being a guy that can carry a movie. So he makes that, you know, ends up having a bit part in the Italian job. I mean, not a bit part, but he's, he's in the Italian job and stars in a few other things uh, up, up to that point. Uh, so just Crank in 2006 and he done Transporter in 2002. So I think that Crank is almost the flip side to the Transporter where he plays someone a very, very... Uh, one note character. It's almost a one note movie, but really effective. I I liked the Transporter movies where Crank is just chaos. And I think this is him still trying to figure out, you know, what, what his comfort zone is, what is, where, what his wheelhouse is. Uh, And so, and so he's experimenting. I would like to think as much as someone like Jason Statham can experiment. I think that's kind of what's going on here. So you have, you know, Crank being almost the, the polar opposite kind of movie from what Transporter is in terms of its style. And just how nuts it is and then he i think he ends up once he ends up doing the expendables when you get to like 2010 because he does crank high voltage in 2009 and then ends up being the expendables in 2010 and i think that what you kind of see after the expendables i think that that kind of puts him on the path that he ends up staying on from that point on and then of course he finds fast and the furious which is a nice spot for him but those two franchises i think not only give him what his post 2010 career is but also shows him what he's good at and kind of ends up being the wheelhouse that he belongs in he's almost a little like tom cruise right like he he's kind of figuring it out in the beginning and doing a little more experimenting um i mean he's in ghost of mars a john carpenter film in 2001 you know and then He's doing the transporter, but you know, he's in collateral a Michael Mann film. Uh, not that he has like huge roles in these films or anything, but then he's in London, which is uh, a very different role than any of those other things. Um, so yeah, I think he's really just kind of like seeing like shows up in the, uh, in the pink Panther with Steve Martin. Yeah. Uh, so, so he pops up in that he, he does, uh, well, in 2011, he does a voice acting in uh, No Mio <laughs> no yeah. So it, it's like, yeah, I, I think in the first you know decade, I think he's he's really just trying to figure out what what works for him. But really, from the Expendables on, it's very uh, almost typecast for the most part. Outside of No Mio and Juliet, and and 
another film that we're actually going to do. Uh, but really, if you look at it, it's it's Statham being Statham. And that's and I, cool. I think, I think we'll end up talking about this a, a lot more. But yeah, I, I point to The Expendables as being an important moment in Statham's career. I think that he's certain someone might have gotten into his ear and kind of helped him a little bit. So I'm sure we'll have more to say about that. that yeah, he was like, stay the course. And and yeah, I mean, just to say, uh, Sloan being someone who definitely stepped out of their wheelhouse for a little bit, may, may have possibly told Statham, maybe you don't want to step too far out of your wheelhouse. <laughs> just gave him a copy of Oscar and was like, yeah. you gave know. Gave him stuff from my mom will shoot and we're like, be careful. Don't do don't do what I did, <laughs> but you know I, I, we're gonna we're gonna dig deeper. We have two more weeks of this, and we're gonna we're gonna figure this all out. Yeah, I but, know what I know what everyone's thinking. How can we possibly top Crank? Uh, I I don't know how anybody knows we can do it, but we we have a few movies in, in the pipe which are which are fun. So yeah, and I think they they kind of tell the tale of his filmography a little bit of like what we were just getting into. Um, but I want to get back to Crank for a second because this came out in 2006. And I want to talk about the box office on its opening weekend. It had a budget of 12 million and it grossed 43 million. Um, but the opening weekend, a respectable 10.5 million. Uh, do you know what came in first that weekend? What beat it? Not. It was Invincible with uh, Mark Wahlberg. So surprising, kind of. Um, but it, that was actually a pretty good weekend at the box office. Invincible came in with $34.8 And then this, Crank, uh, made $10.5 <laughs> Number three, The Wicker Man, the Nicolas Cage remake of the amazing 1973 film. Uh, terrible, terrible film but it made almost $10 million its opening weekends. The Wicker Man made slightly more than Little Miss Sunshine, which came in at number four at the box office, which uh, is, is a far superior film to any of these, um, I think. And then uh, rounding out the box office with 6.2 million was The Illusionist. So interesting box office, Disney Sports, Heart of Gold film beats out Crank, uh, which is, heart beating fast film so yeah pretty eclectic bunch i mean i'm a i'm a big fan of the illusionist i may be the only one i don't know but uh, over the prestige well i like both of them i'm a sucker for a good magic movie so that, that may just be uh i may be the core demographic for these kinds of movies uh it was poor timing to release the illusionist and the prestige so close together but uh yeah. I, I was down for the illusionist i thought it was okay <laughs> it's the classic bugs life ants dilemma right. yeah but uh yeah it wasn't bad um not a huge ed norton fan though see i thought it was a great role for, for ed norton because you know he was supposed to be like a uh kind of a jerk like a, a you know a know-it-all magician so uh i think i think that role fit him really well yeah um yeah so that's the box office um crank 43 million i mean it you know it made 31 million dollars that's not bad uh, $12 million budget is is very small. So for it to earn all of that back times three is pretty impressive. Um, and again, I think it's the technology, you know, the, the style and the technology more than the film itself. So 
yeah, I think I think in in a lot of ways, you know, someone's first movie, especially guys like this who are trying to bring a very particular style to to movie making, uh, it kind of acts as a calling card almost for them, and and it was successful in in that respect where it got them more work, that kind of put their names on the map, and I mean, both of them, as far as I know, are still working in the business, even though they've gone their separate ways for now, anyway. Um, but you know they ended up uh, doing a few more movies together. And uh, what's interesting is the first five they wrote the screenplays for, but Ghost Rider: Spirit of Vengeance they did not. Um, so maybe that that was part of the beginning of the end. Maybe they, you know, they, their screenwriting uh, was going downhill. Maybe as a team. Um, but yeah, both of them end up doing other things. And as I said, Happy is is an excellent TV show. So uh, they've done good work afterwards. Yeah, and Brian Taylor is actually directing a a, a Hellboy uh, series that's coming out. So that's... I saw that, and I think again that makes sense to me. That seems like uh, something that definitely fits into his wheelhouse, uh, especially if it if it follows more of that idea of uh, preacher. That show that was on AMC, also based on a, a comic, um, which was another bonkers television show. But if it, if it, if it's I if love it that show. Little, yeah, if it gets a little weirder. Uh, I could definitely see him bringing something to Hellboy. A Hellboy TV show seems expensive if it's not animated. So are we sure it's a TV show and not a movie? I think it's a mini series, or at least a limited series. Um, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But I thought it was, uh, yeah, at least a limited series. Maybe it's it's just a film on a streamer. I don't know. Yeah, it's called Hellboy the Crooked Man. And uh, Brian Taylor is uh, at the helm. So it uh, could be really good. Yeah, uh, who knows? Oh, well, do you want to tell them what what uh, what happened to the other one? <laughs> oh yeah, uh, Mark Neveldine. He so he kind of stepped away from the industry for a while. He actually married Allison Lohman, who uh, was in Gamer, but I know her the most from Sam Raimi's Drag Me to Hell, which was a fantastic PG thirteen rated horror film. I really loved it. Um, and then the two of them moved upstate, upstate New York, uh, had three kids and uh apparently don't have a television or cell phones or anything like that um which is great but uh he also does have a company called heavy dose that's partnered with amazon to produce new content so he is working now and uh i'm not sure what he has coming next but uh it looks like he is back in the game he seems to me like the well, at least the one with the visuals so i'm excited to see what he comes up with um because he did, uh, did a couple things after this. Um, made a film called The Vatican Tapes with Michael Pena and Olivia Taylor Dudley, which I actually didn't mind. I thought it was okay. Um, and then he, he did Panama, which might have been a straight-to-video release with uh, Mel Gibson and Cole Hauser in 2022. So I don't know. I don't. Maybe I don't know what to uh, to expect yeah, from him next. I, Panama. When I saw that, it kind of said to me like maybe where both Mel Gibson and Mark Nebeldine are in their careers. But. Yeah, and it's interesting, the cinematographer for Crank, Adam Biddle, uh, he kind of went the same route. He does a ton of television now, and and uh, a lot of a lot of the straight-to-DVD action, which is kind of a fascinating genre that it seems like a lot of sort of former big names are getting into. I mean, he did, uh, he shot a film called Pursuit in 2022 with Emil Hirsch and John Cusack. And then a film 
called The Second with Ryan Philippi in 2020. So it's interesting the way these careers are working with streaming. Um, maybe we'll see Statham in something that's straight to video. I, I mean, the Expendables are almost, it feels like straight to video things to me, but <laughs> maybe he'll actually get there eventually, like 10 years from now. But yeah, why don't we tell everyone what's on tap for next week? This is going to be an interesting departure. So the next week, we're going to do the one, technically the only real comedy that Jason Statham was ever in, which was Spy with Melissa McCarthy. And Spy is a Paul Feig film, and I'm a big fan of Paul Feig, so uh, it's going to be fun to watch it and, and see how he can bring Statham to life in maybe a little bit of a different way, uh, if he does. I don't know. We'll see. Very excited to talk about that one. So... That's the show, and thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week with Spy. And in the meantime, check us out online. We are on Patreon at patreon.com slash moviethrowdownpod. And we're on social media too. Just search moviethrowdownpod everywhere and you'll find us. Uh, so Mike, thanks, it's been a lot of fun. And we will talk to you next time. So long.